Good morning, Maple Grove. All right, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Hey, uh, let's start off. Uh, could you hit the next slide? Let's get warmed up with this right here. Uh, okay, uh, we're going to say these statements here, you know, with conviction, right? Like we really believe it. And, and to start us off, I'll say them and then you repeat, but they're right here, okay? God loves me. Really? That's weak. God loves me. God chose me. God is with me. God is for me. In Christ, God has forgiven me. God has a plan and purpose for me. Amen. Hey, listen, those five statements are all true. And, and, and listen, those truths are what is real and what is lasting. Get it? Good. Yes, it's July 30th, 2023, and I proclaim to you that in Christ you are forgiven, in Christ you are free, in Christ you are empowered, and in Christ you are headed home to your awesome mind blowing forever with Him in a place that you could only imagine. I'm going to say that again. I'm not, I'm not sure you heard me. In Christ, you are free. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are empowered. And in Christ, you are headed home to your awesome mind blowing forever with him in a place that you can only imagine. Amen? Amen. Man, if that's true, that's good news, right? If that's true, we have a reason to praise him no matter what we are going through. Now this morning, we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 9. And the study we've been doing of the 10 miracles that Jesus performed after the Sermon on the Mount, demonstrating that he has authority over all things. I understand, Maple Grove, in, in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew declares that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. Matthew 8, 1 through 7. Over what's required of us if we want to follow after him and live in his kingdom. Matthew 8, 18 through 22. He has authority over nature as he commanded the waves and the winds to be still. Matthew 8, 8, Matthew 8, 23 through 27. Over the supernatural, over demons, over the spiritual forces of evil as with a simple word, go! And he casts out a legion of demons, Matthew 8, 28 through 34. He has authority over sin as he forgave the paralytic in Matthew 9, 1 through 13. He has the power over and authority over the false rule-keeping religious system of the scribes and Pharisees as he eats with sinners as, and as he feasts rather than fast, pouring new wine into new wineskins, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. And he has authority over life and death itself as he raises Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead. Question, do you know anyone? that has that kind of authority. And again, as I've been saying, ever since we began this deep dive into Matthew 8 and 9, at the point that God is driving home through the pen of Matthew in these two chapters is that since Jesus possesses absolute authority in the world, he therefore warrants, since Jesus possesses absolute authority in the world, he therefore warrants, demands, requires, Absolute, complete, unqualified, uttering, no strings attached, allegiance from the world, from you and from me. Get it? Yeah, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul nailed it when he said in Colossians chapter 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. For in him, someone say, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, 
Someone say, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Okay, let's do this. Our text is Matthew 9, 27 through 38. And listen, in these 11 verses, we're going to see Jesus open the eyes of two blind men, cast out a demon who had made a man mute. We're going to see Jesus tell us that the harvest is plentiful. And we're going to discover that oftentimes it's the blind who see and the seeing who are actually blind who Jesus really is. Matthew 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they're going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field of harvest. May God bless the reading of his word. Again, that's our text. And the way I want to unpack it, attack it, and then unpack it, the way I want to attack it is by unpacking four statements. I attack, then I unpack, right? I attack, then I unpack, right? Statement number one, the blind see, verses 27 to 31. The seeing or blind, verses 32 through 34. The harvest is plentiful, verses 35 through 38. And final statement, what is your response to Jesus this day? Before we go there, let's take two, and that's where we get up and welcome those around us. Take two minutes to say hi to those around you. All right. Heavenly Father, as we, as we lean into your word this morning, I pray that our eyes will be open, our ears will be open, and God, that the words that are spoken are from you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's do this, Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 38. And now, we've been studying the gospel of Matthew for quite a while, and listen, one of the things that we've seen is that Matthew is a is a very purposeful teacher, uh, one who has a single passion driving him as his pen moves across the page. Uh, question, what, what is the single passion that is driving Matthew? Uh, understand, Matthew wants those who read his gospel, including us, to know who Jesus really is. Uh, therefore, he is very strategic in how he puts his gospel to paper. And so he begins with Jesus' genealogy. Matthew 1, verse 1, he writes, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's the Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In other words, he is the promised Messiah king whose throne will endure forever. He's the son of Abraham. through whom all nations of the world will be blessed, and whose offspring will be as numerous as the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. He's the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And after the genealogy, Matthew writes about Jesus' birth, telling us how the angel Gabriel told Joseph 
that the child marrying was carrying was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he's to name him Jesus, which means God is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. And that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Matthew writes of the visit of the wise man who came seeking the one born king of the Jews. And then he writes of Jesus' baptism when the heaven opened up and the spirit descended like a dove and and God spoke and said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And then Matthew writes of the 40 days and 40 nights Jesus spent battling Satan and winning over Satan in the wilderness. Understand, the first four chapters, Matthew is like, yo, listen up. This is who Jesus is. And then in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Matthew gives us the most detailed account of Jesus' teaching in all of Scripture. As records Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. His kingdom manifesto about what it means to live in his kingdom. You have heard it said, you have been taught, but I say to you. Anyone who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. And anyone who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a person who builds his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. A question, so Upon what foundation are are you building your life? And if you're doing, our faith comes from hearing, reading. You know, today we read about Jacob and the idea that the choices you and I make today don't just impact our lives. They impact the lives of our children. They impact the lives of our grandchildren, right? And so when you choose to build your life on the teachings of Jesus, you are setting a legacy that can last forever. Amen? And then in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew shares with us 10 powerful miracles that back up, that validate that Jesus is who he said he is. And here's the deal. Like, here's the place that Matthew has been taking us to ever since he penned the very first verse of his gospel. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he said. Here's the authority he has over all things, over sickness, over disease, over nature, over the spiritual forces of evil, over sin, and over life and death. Now, what is your response to him? In our text, we... We see three different responses by the blind man, by the crowd, and by the Pharisees. Okay, Matthew 9, 27, 38, let the unpacking begin. The blind see. And as Jesus went on from there, uh, on from the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, on from healing the woman who had a medical issue for over 12 years. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him. Okay, let's think about that. That could not have been an easy thing for them to do. I mean, after all, they're they're blind. Uh, They can't see. And remember, the crowd that was following Jesus, according to Luke, when he was going to Jairus' house, Luke said the crowd was so large that it almost crushed Jesus. Luke 8, verse 42. And so the crowd is huge. And as these blind guys push their way through this crowd, they're, they're asking people, hey, hey, which way did Jesus go? And they're, they're carefully listening to every sound that might guide them along the way. Again, this journey, blind through a crowded street, was not easy, but they were determined to follow after Jesus. You see, they were desperate. Ever been desperate? And so there was no way they would let the crowd, this massive humanity, stop them or get in their way. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? 
And, and you know, maybe Jesus would ask some of us the same thing this morning. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you believe that I'm able to set you free? Do you believe that I'm able to forgive your sin and remove your guilt and shame? Do you believe that, that I can cause all things to work together for the good? Do you believe that I can give you a peace that transcends all understanding and removes all your anxiety? Do you believe that I can make you a new creation? Do you believe that I can give you pure joy in the face of trials and trouble of every kind? Do you believe that I can help you defeat that temptation? Do you believe that I can help you overcome that hurt, that habit, that hang-up? Do you believe that I can empower you to do the good things that I plan for you to do before I even created you? Do you believe that I can and will build my church? That one's for me. And now this week, as I began my deep dive into this encounter with these two blind men, I was like, okay, why is Jesus, who's always, always seems to be totally fine with being interrupted, why does he seem to be ignoring these guys as they cry out to him? I mean, we've, we've seen Jesus be interrupted, right, in Matthew 8 9, interrupted by the leper, interrupted by the centurion, interrupted by a guy dropped through the roof in the middle of a sermon, interrupted by... Jairus, whose daughter had died, interrupted on his way to raise the daughter from the dead by a woman who touched the hem of his coat. I mean, every time, Jesus responds immediately to the interruption. But here it appears that he just ignores these guys and keeps on walking back to the place he was staying, probably Peter's house. Like he doesn't say anything to them at all. And listen, these two guys were hard to miss. Matthew says that they were calling out present tense, again and again, have mercy on us, son of David. Now the phrase calling out is the Greek word kradzo, and I think it's a pretty weak translation of a word that means to scream, to yell, to shriek like a bird of prey. I mean, it's the same word, kradzo, that was used in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, to describe the demons who yelled out to Jesus, what do you want to do with us, son of God? It's the same word used in Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, when Jesus is walking on water and his guys are terrified and they scream out, it's a ghost. It's the same word used in Matthew 27, 23, when the crowd shouts louder and louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him. And it's the same word used in Matthew 27, verse 50, when Jesus cried out in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. So you see the picture that Matthew is painting. The streets are crowded, wall-to-wall people, and these two blind men are screaming and crying out again and again and again, have mercy on us, son of David! 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 And Jesus just keeps walking on down the street. He says nothing to them. He doesn't even appear to acknowledge them. Like, what gives? question, what do you think these guys are feeling as their cries of mercy are seemingly ignored? Do you think with each shout, they shout it louder, trying all the more to get his attention? And have you ever felt the same way? Like, have you ever cried out in desperation again and again to God, God, help me! God, help me in this relationship. Help me in this struggle. Help me in what I'm going through. And it seems like either God can't hear you or he's simply choosing to ignore you. But listen, despite the apparent silence, these two guys would not be deterred. Yeah, they were going to ask and keep on asking. They were going to knock and keep on knocking. They were going to seek and keep on seeking. And I'll be sure with you what I think is going on and why it's so significant that the first people that ever called Jesus the son of David were two blind guys. And listen, this is huge. 
You see, though these guys were blind, they saw Jesus more clearly than anyone else did at the time. See, not only did they realize that Jesus was merciful, that Jesus was compassionate, and that Jesus had the power to heal them, but they also recognized that he is the son of David, the Messiah, the one true forever king. And even though Matthew, in the very first verse of his gospel, writes that Jesus is the son of David, no one has ever called Jesus by that title up to this point. So these guys did not pick up some buzzword or chatter from the crowd. Instead, they somehow knew that Jesus was not just a miracle worker, but that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Yeah, that's correct. Blind men, two blind men, were the first to see and proclaim who Jesus really is. And understand the title, Son of David, was probably the favorite messianic title for the Jewish people. Who could blame them? I mean, after all, the days of David were days of glory, days of victory after victory of their enemies, days of prosperity throughout the land. And this title was birthed in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When God, through the prophet Nathan, spoke these words to King David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. And he will be my son. Understand, God promised David that through his family, a king would come and establish an eternal kingdom. And listen, from the time of that promise in 1000 BC to the time that Jesus put on flesh, all of Israel was anticipating and living in expectation of that arrival. Hey, check out what Daniel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33. About the child she was about to have. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I love it. Gabriel's like, he's, he's quoting the promise that that God gave to David in Samuel, 2 Samuel 7. Okay, fast forward from the birth of Jesus to the final Sunday of, of his life, Palm Sunday. Question, when the crowd recognized Jesus for who he was claiming to be, what did they shout? Matthew 21, verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And they shouted it because they've been waiting their entire lives. They've been waiting for a thousand years for him to come. And so they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And listen, the fact that the Messiah will be from the house of David, was not lost on those who opposed Jesus. Now, notice this encounter that Jesus had with the religious leaders the week of his death. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? He is what? He is the son of David, they replied. Which is why on Palm Sunday, these religious leaders got really upset when they heard people shouting, to Jesus, Hosanna, son of David. I mean, they became so indignant, Scripture says, that they told Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop saying that. Tell them to stop calling you the son of David. And Jesus said, I, I tell you the truth. If they were to keep silent, the stones themselves would cry out. Kradzo, the word shows up again. Again, these blind men are the very first to address Jesus with this title. Like it's taken Matthew nine chapters to get to the point where anyone addresses Jesus in this way, as the son of David, the Messiah King. And here's the deal. Here's the, here's the bottom line. The blind guys believe in who Jesus is, the son of David, and they believe in what Jesus can do, open up their blind eyes. 
And again, I cannot emphasize it enough that it's a really huge deal that the first people to see Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, were two blind guys. And understand, this is not happenstance. This is intentional. And it's extremely significant for several reasons. And let, let me kind of build my case. Uh, number one, in the Old Testament, we read of all kinds of healings. Even Elisha even raised someone of the dead. But there's not a single account in the Old Testament of anyone being healed of blindness. Number two, in the Old Testament, we read that the, the, the giving of sight to the blind was a divine activity. In Exodus 4, perhaps you remember that you know, God calls Moses to, to deliver his, his people from slavery, and Moses kind of pushes back on that, and he says, hey, you know what, I, I don't speak so well. And God says this in Exodus 4, verse 11. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So no one healed a blindness in the Old Testament. Old Testament teaches that it's a divine activity. Number three, giving sight to the blind is one of the activities attributed to the Messiah. In fact, several times in Isaiah, we read that the giving of the sight to the blind it would be an earmark of the Messiah. Isaiah 29, 18 through 19. In that day, someone say in that day. That's the day of the Messiah. The deaf will hear the words of the scroll. And out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, talking again about the time of Messiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leak like a deer, and the mute, right, like we're seeing in our text, and the mute tongue shout for joy. I love this. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And then another one in Isaiah. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, Talking about the Messiah, I will hold your hand, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Someone say to open. Someone say to free. Someone say to release. And listen, in Matthew chapter 9, we see the fulfillment of those prophecies as Jesus gives sight to the blind. Quick question. How, how many miracles did these blind men see? <laughs> None. Uh, which means that any information they got about Jesus came through what? Came through, came through hearing. Through hearing the word of God, like in Isaiah, for hearing the teaching of Jesus, for hearing all the reports of, of what Jesus had done. Again, their faith came through what? It came through hearing. And listen, in a very real way, these guys represent us, right? I mean, raise your hand if you've ever seen Jesus. If you've ever seen Jesus perform a miracle. But you're hearing about it this morning. You've heard a lot of things in your lifetime. The question is, do you believe? Do you believe the way the blind men believed? They got all the information through hearing. Faith comes from hearing. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. And Paul says in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Now, that's why at Maple Grove, I've been pushing forever Something called faith comes from hearing where we read a chapter every day because there's no better way, right, you know, to hear from God than actually reading God's word. Okay, back to my case about how the blind being the first to see Jesus calling the son of David is significant attention and a really big deal. Again, Old Testament, no one healed of blindness. Old Testament, healing of blind is divine activity. 
giving sight to the blind was one of the activities attributed to Messiah, an earmark of his ministry. Uh, number four, Jesus' most frequent singled out healing is giving sight to the blind. Uh, which shouldn't surprise us because we read in Luke chapter 4 when, when, when Jesus launched his ministry, he's back in his hometown and he's in Nazareth and he goes there and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him and he unrolls that scroll and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Understand, there was no healing of the blind before Jesus. Uh, there's no post-gospel healing of the blind recorded in Scripture after Jesus. That's significant. It's like, hey, this is reserved for the Messiah. Uh, number five, why it's such a big deal is because physical blindness is often used allegorically to speak about spiritual blindness. We see Jesus addressing this in Matthew 13. Uh, Jesus is speaking in parables, and, and no one really understands what he's talking about, but his disciples later on ask him about it. Matthew 13, 13 through 14. He says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Not because I just like to tell stories, but there's a bigger purpose. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. See, Jesus spoke in parables because parables, uh, they demand that we, we dig deeper, that we ask questions. Jesus, what does a sower represent? Jesus, who's a sower? Jesus, there's some things I don't understand. But listen, if you don't really want to know who Jesus is, then you won't ask the questions. And back then, the crowd did not ask the questions. Ever seeing, but never perceiving. They have physical sight, but they're not getting it because they did not want to get it. Get it? Good. A few more scriptures on how blindness is used allegorically in scripture. In Matthew 15, Jesus is busting on the, the Pharisees and about their traditions. And, and he even says, you know what, that you, Isaiah was right about you guys. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And his guys come to him and say, hey, you know what, Jesus, you're, you're kind of ticking them off. You're kind of offending them right now, Jesus. And Jesus says this in Matthew 15, 14. Leave them. They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Here's the last example about how blindness is used allegorically to speak of spiritual blindness. Second Corinthians 4 4. Paul writes, The God of this age has blinded the, the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Okay, saying, piecing those five things together, no healings of blindness in Old Testament. Healing of blindness was a divine activity. Healing of blindness is attributed to the Messiah. Jesus' number one single out miracle is the healing of blind people and in Scripture, physical blindness often resents spiritual blindness. Do you see why it's so significant that the very first people to see who Jesus really is, to see he's a Messiah, are guys who are blind? Back to our text. When they'd gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you, and their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. See that no one knows about this. So what's the this that they're to keep secret? What's the this or to keep what's the this that they're to keep on the down low? 
Were they not to let anyone know that they've been healed of blindness? Like, were they supposed to go out and fake it? Like, they're still blind? I don't think so. Understand that this, that they were to keep silent and not talk about, was that the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of David. And not because he wasn't, but because he wasn't ready to go public with that yet. Which is why I think he, they, that he ignored them when they started shouting that. He didn't want, did not want to acknowledge that he was the Messiah at that point in time. So he did not turn around and acknowledge to them that he even heard them. Because Jesus did not want them to know he was the Messiah until they knew what kind of Messiah he was going to be. Until they knew that he wasn't going to be a Messiah king like David. Who would overthrow Rome and at the edge of the sword bring about a great Jewish world empire. I mean, think about it. Look what happened just at the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, they're all getting all amped up waiting for the Messiah, right? And they're in the wilderness and some dude starts multiplying bread, that brings back images of Moses and the 40 years where God rained down manna. And what did the people do? They were getting ready to make Jesus king by force, and Jesus decided to go in the mountains, and he, he, actually, he actually left them. So Jesus sternly warns them not to tell anyone. And then we read, but they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Yeah, I get it. They couldn't help themselves, right? But they did disobey. And make things harder for Jesus. But hear me, hear me, hear me. Not to excuse their disobedience. But I think Jesus prefers their disobedience over ours. Like, like he told them, don't speak about me. And they spoke about him. He tells us to speak about him. To make him known. To make disciples of all nations. And we stay silent and do not speak about him. We stay silent among our family members. We stay silent and don't speak about him to our friends, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. And I do think Jesus would prefer their disobedience over ours. Get it? Good. That's tough, right? That's true. Okay, that's the blind seeing. Now let's talk about the seeing that are blind. And this will go pretty fast. Get you're getting worried. But I fed you today. Now we're eating the word. Even better than bacon. Uh, the seeing are blind. While they're going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, I remember like, wow, there's no details. Like, what? And Matthew goes, because his point wasn't the details. His point would be the reaction of the people. The man who had been made mute spoke. Remember Isaiah 35? The mute tongue, when the Messiah comes, will shout for joy, praising God. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. And I think they're talking about all the stuff that happened that day in Capernaum. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. I mean, these guys, they saw the miracles that Jesus was performing in Capernaum, cleansing the leper, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. And they knew and had been studying their entire lives, all the scriptures of the Old Testament, like those in Isaiah, that spoke of the coming of the Messiah, scriptures being being fulfilled right before the very eyes, but they were blind. And they couldn't see it. Understand, they were blinded by their pride. They were blinded by their so-called intelligence. They were blinded by their love for their own traditions and their own lifestyles. They were blinded by Satan, the evil one. I mean, all the evidence about who Jesus is was staring them right in the face. They were blind. Never met anyone like that? You know, as I was working on that just the other day, an old song came to mind uh, by Ray Stevens. I won't sing it. Maybe I will. 1970. 
Remember the song, Everything is Beautiful? He has this line there. There is none so blind as he who will not see. Right? Here's the evidence of Jesus. Here's the evidence of a creator God. And yet they don't see. There's none so blind as he will not see. We must not close our minds. We must let our thoughts be free. The blind see, the seeing are blind, and the harvest is plentiful. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this week when I got to the point, I was, I was saying, hey, what's it like to be a sheep without a shepherd? And so I Googled, or Safari, I'm not sure, or Go Duck it, I can't remember, but hey, what is it like to be a sheep without a shepherd? And I came upon a website right away called farmingbase.com. And, and here's what they say. Shepherding can be often a tedious and hectic job. It requires one to be watchful and vigilant. For this reason, it's only natural for the shepherd to get tired and overwhelmed. This is a case for you, and you were wondering whether your flock can live without you. Here's the answer to your question. No. Sheep cannot live without a shepherd. They're entirely dependent on the shepherd for everything. They require constant care and watching over. So leaving them unattended, because you're tired and worn out, can put them at risk and greatly endanger their lives. And then he had these things. Here's what can happen. See, without a shepherd, sheep can get lost easily. Uh, without a shepherd, sheep can't find pasture or water. Without a shepherd, they're defenseless. Without a shepherd, their wool overgrows, gets matted, dirty, infected with parasites, and they get disease. Without a shepherd, they're just going to follow whatever sheep's in front of them. If that sheep goes over the cliff, guess where they're going? They'll go over that cliff as well. Sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Some versions say they were confused and helpless. They were weary and worn out. They were hurting and helpless. They were confused and aimless. Like sheep without a shepherd. They said, disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Now, Jesus says that the harvest is what? That is, it's what? No one wants to go home yet. It's what? Okay. You all want to go home. That's good. And he says that many of all are like sheep without a shepherd. Question. Do you think there are people in our community who are confused and helpless? Who are weary and worn out? Who are hurting and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? Do you think there are people in our community like the disciples in the Sea of Galilee who are facing a violent storm, an emotional storm, a relational storm, but they're facing it without a shepherd? You think there are people in our community who, like the leper, feel alone, isolate, they feel like an outcast, but they have no shepherd? Do you think there are people like the centurion who had a loved one who was sick and doesn't know what to do and they don't have a shepherd? Do you think there's anyone like that desperate woman who had a serious medical condition that just does not get any better? Doctor after doctor after doctor doesn't know what to do and she, she doesn't have a shepherd? you think there's anyone in our community that, that has lost a loved one, a husband, a wife, a child? And it's trying to deal with that loss, but doesn't have a shepherd. I mean, it's great that the Lord is our shepherd. Amen? But what about those who don't have them? I mean, do we ever think about that? How hard it must be? to go through hard times without a shepherd, without a good shepherd. You know, this past Friday, the 28th, was the 27th anniversary where my first wife went home after a battle with cancer. She didn't lose the battle. She just got a reward. And I couldn't imagine doing that without a shepherd, yet people are. 
There's so many hurting people in our community. And they have no shepherd. No one to watch over them. And they get lost easily. They're defenseless against in this wicked and nasty, hateful world. He saw the crowds and compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. They're few. Question, why do you think the workers are few? Any ideas? Uh, yesterday, I posted that question on Facebook, right? Sermon help. Sometimes I get help, sometimes I don't. And I, there's some really great responses. But I said, hey, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The need is great, but we're too busy celebrating our shepherd to worry about those who don't have it. And I said, why do you think the workers are few? And uh, next week I'm going to share some of those ideas. But uh, this week I, I really want us to do three things. Number one, I want us to really reflect on what it's like to live in this dark, broken world that's full of trouble and heartache. To go through all the pain and suffering and difficulties and have no shepherd. Reflect what that's like. And reflect on some answers to the question. Like, hey, okay, the need's great. Why are the workers few? Feel free, to go my, feel free to go on my Facebook and post your ideas. And number three, pray the prayer that Jesus asks you and me to pray. Pray that the Lord will send out harvesters, right? Matthew 9, 38. You know, this morning I decided to go ahead and set my alarm on my phone, the 9, 38, I'll do it A and PM because it's not that late, you know. If you go to bed too early, but you know, what goes off, oh wow, alarm went off. You know what? And maybe when it goes off, maybe I'll be in in the presence of someone who maybe needs to hear about my good shepherd. Talk about the blind who see, the singer blind, the harvest is plentiful. And here's the most important statement we'll unpack, but it's gonna be fast, but it is the most important one. Like in light of what Matthew has told us about Jesus and in light of what you yourself have read about Jesus, in light of what you've seen Jesus do in, in your life, in the lives of others, what is your response to him? And there's three responses in our text, by the crowds, the blind man, and, and by the religious leaders. And truth be told, one of those responses has been and is our response. And and pretty much, I I think they cover all the possible responses there could ever be, these three responses. And we have the crowds. And their response to Jesus was admiration and amazement. What a great guy you are, Jesus. That's a great miracle. You're a great teacher. You say so many nice things. I really admire you. I'm amazed by you. But they don't see him as a Savior King. Understand, Jesus and I put on flesh and die on a cross to be admired. But that's most of the world, right? Hey, we like, he's okay. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is cool. But that's it. That's the extent of it. Then you have religious leaders. And their response was rejection and opposition. I mean, the evidence is before people in our world today, maybe before you, because of pride, because of so-called intelligence. And if your so-called intelligence leads you to think that God is not real and Jesus is not true, he didn't rise from the dead, then your so-called intelligence is not very intelligent. And blinded by their love for their own lifestyle and traditions, they're not see who he is. And two blind guys, belief and surrender, Right? It's the best response. It's a saving response. It's a daily response. It's an ongoing response, right? Because guess what? We make this response. I don't know about you. you know, that's the response I want, but sometimes I, 
I mess up and I stumble and I fall and I'm disobedient. And then I, I have to go back to, yeah, Jesus wants me to believe in him, but he wants me to surrender to him. So what is your response to Jesus today? Admiration, amazement, rejection, and opposition? Or is it belief and surrender? You know, belief in who he is and surrender to his word. Surrender to the salvation that's found only in him, right? Salvation that's free by grace alone. A salvation that we respond in grace through faith, repentance, and through being buried with Christ in, in baptism. And if you're here today and, you know, you've been admiring Jesus for a while, you know, he wants you to surrender to him, to his word and to his truth. Amen? Amen. And so this week, think about those things I told you to reflect on. Think about, hey, what, what is my response really? Do I just admire Jesus? Yay, Jesus, yay. Or is it belief and surrender? And I'll tell you one response is, and, and I'm kind of excited about the song we're going to sing. Uh, um, a lot of you guys know it. Because one response to Jesus would be a word that starts with G, gratitude, right? And, and so, um, I mean, think about all that Jesus did. Think about how, it's, how great it is to have a shepherd you know, that loves you and cares for you, that leads you beside still waters, right? That leads you through the valley of darkness, that sets a table before you in the presence of his enemies. Think about how great that is and how grateful we should be. And so we're going we're gonna to sing that song. And we always take communion. Um, every week we have two stations off to the side. And, and if you haven't grabbed your communion yet, grab it. But, but sing this song and let it be an expression of how you really feel and how grateful you are to all that God has done, will do, and is going to do in your life. Uh, would you stand? Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. And God, you know what? Sometimes, Lord, all we can do is thank you. And God, I pray for us in this room, Lord. I, I pray for those in this room who have a good shepherd like I do. Lord, that we will appreciate it and want to let other people know how great he is. And God, I pray for anyone who is struggling, Lord, to know that you love them and you care about them. For those who need to surrender to you, may they do that. And may we all just sing right now with hearts full of gratitude to you.